All right, so I really just gave my entire sermon to the children. Uh, that's all I really have to say. I just want to give you a bit more detail. Because um, uh, we're studying uh, the book of First Timothy. We've done a series. We're close to the end of it now. see a lot of new faces this morning. And that's wonderful. Thanks for being here. Um, uh, so you, you're jumping into the middle of a sermon series. And we're looking at the end of First uh, Timothy chapter 5, if you want to look that up. First Timothy chapter 5. Um, we're starting at verse 17 today. Um, and the heart of Paul's message to Timothy um, at the end of chapter 5 is be discerning. Be discerning. That's the, uh, the, the main idea of this whole passage. Um, so I want to show you Hans again. Um, and when you look at this man, when you first watched Frozen, did any of you detect a villain in there? <laughs> look at that man. Uh, this was a huge surprise to me. I mean, could you have a bigger dreamboat of a handsome prince? Uh, young, handsome, kind, courteous, beautifully dressed, immaculately color-coordinated. Uh, look at those wide, innocent eyes and that warm, slightly shy smile. He is totally and completely winsome. Um, and of course, you can add a fine singing voice. And then we realize in the movie that behind that princely facade, he's a real piece of work. Um, and then on the other hand, here's Christoph, uh, kind of scruffy, smelly, a bit clumsy, rough around the edges. And in his first couple of scenes, he seems gruff and selfish. Um, and add in the fact that his only friend is a reindeer, uh, and he doesn't seem much like hero material. Um, but then later on, when it comes to the test time and the chips are down, Christoph turns out to be a real mensch, doesn't he? Uh, so underneath that scruffy exterior beats a heart of gold. Uh, and the movie Frozen really works because this dynamic is true in the real world. People are so often not what they seem, and it takes real time and discernment to see the truth. So as we look at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting at 17, um, we remember that this letter that we're reading is a letter from Paul near the end of his life when he was very senior in the church. He was kind of a bit like an archbishop, and he was writing this letter to Timothy, who was a bit like a bishop. He was in charge of multiple congregations. He was overseeing the elders, the clergy in those congregations. So Timothy's job was to choose and to take care of the people who were going to lead his congregations. And he calls them here the elders, or that Greek word is presbyteros, the presbyters. Um, we now in this church call them priests. And when we use the word priest, that's just an anglicized version of the Greek word presbyteros. That's just presbyter, right? Um, so 1 Timothy 5 is like an archbishop writing to a bishop about his priests. It's kind of what's going on in this letter. And the core of the message is to be discerning. Be discerning. So three things. Paul says, first, be discerning about who you honor. Second, be discerning about who you rebuke. And third, be discerning about who you ordain. So uh, you're reading the church's mail here, but I hope that since it's God's word, it will have things to speak to all of us this morning. Let's look at those three things first. Be discerning about who you honor. This is from verses 17 and 18. Paul wrote, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. 
So what Paul is saying is that ordained ministers, elders, who labour in preaching and teaching are worthy of double honour. Now that Greek word for honour has a double meaning. It can mean a payment or it can mean praise. So it's really the word for tribute. Um, so like if you went to visit a king, you might bring him a tribute, which was a gift that had value, but also was a token of your respect. That's kind of the idea of the word. It has a double meaning. And uh, heads of state still do this when they visit each other. Uh, so for example, when President Obama first went to visit the Queen of England, he gave her an MP3 player loaded up with all of his best speeches. <laughs> Cute. Um, and, uh, and so Paul uses this word for tribute when he says, let the presbyters who lead well be considered worthy of double honor. Now, some commentators have said that means twice as much honor, right? Or double pay. Um, but John Stott said that what it means is to give honor in both senses of the word. So it's where with a double meaning, and the double honor is uh, both senses of the word. So both respect and payment. And I think his interpretation makes the most sense. So Paul tells Timothy to give double honor to his priests, both praise and payment, but also to be discerning about it. So it should go to those who rule well. And rule here means to steward well. You're not ruling as an owner, but as an accountable superintendent. That's right. uh, those who rule well. And then he says, especially to those who labor in preaching and teaching. And uh, behind that word preaching is the Greek word logos. So some of your English translations will say, to those who labor in the word and teaching. Uh, that word labor in verse 17 means wearying and sweat-producing toil. <laughs> um, and I want to argue that the real labor of Bible teaching isn't done in public. It's not done here, standing in the pulpit. Uh, the real work in the Word and teaching is done in private. The real work is a hidden work. Um, so when anyone stands up uh, to preach to you, what you hear is the finished work, the end product of hours of labor. Um, you don't see the labor that went into that word, the lifetime of uh, study, the prayer, the study that week, the reading, the thinking, the puzzling over competing theologies, then the contextualizing, the organization, the writing, the editing, the hunting online for pictures of Disney characters. <laughs> um, but the hardest and most important thing of all is the way that all honest preaching of God's word destroys the preacher. Right? The word of God gets inside you when you presume to explain it to other people, and it breaks you apart. Mm. So there's a guy called Bruce Thielemann who wrote, There is no special honor in preaching, only special pain. Mm. The pulpit calls its preachers as the sea calls its sailors, and like the sea, it batters and bruises and does not rest. Mm. To preach... To really preach is to die naked a little at a time and to know each time you do it that you must do it again. Mm. But Paul believed, and we still believe, that the beastly work of preaching, the toilsome labor in God's word, is invaluable. Mm. Because nothing can more reliably or efficiently feed God's people than this can. And nothing can do more to guard their faith or sustain their hope and keep them from sin and error. So Paul says to honor this work because it's important. 
even vital. We need it. We need someone to step up and do it. And when Paul says that teaching elders deserve honor, he backs it up by quoting from two verses of scripture that talk about lowly but essential work. So he quotes Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, you shall not muzzle an ox when he's treading out the grain. And then Jesus from Luke 10, verse 7, the laborer deserves his wages. And when you think about it, neither of these comparisons is particularly flattering to the preacher, right? <laughs> Paul says, you know, you remind me of a big dumb cow, <laughs> or maybe like a trench digger. Right? Preachers are not to be honored because of their glory or their degrees or gifting or brilliance or status. It's not the honor that's given to kings or to celebrities. It's actually quite the opposite. They're to be honored as hard-working slaves or servants because the job they do is toilsome and because it's valuable and it provides the food that we all need. So Moses said that it's not fair to muzzle an ox while he treads out grain, because what that does is pre prevent that ox from eating the very food that he's working to produce. The principle is that if you benefit from the food, then share that benefit with the one who labored to bring it to you. And here Paul says in the same way, elders who rule well deserve that kind of double honor. Now I said at the beginning that Paul's talking to a bishop when he says this. He's not talking to the people in the pew. Um, but since none of you are bishops, then let me make some side applications to you because a lot of you do this. You put this word into practice already. So most of you give financially to the mission of this church. And one of the things that your gifts make possible is for me and Taylor to labor in the word and in preaching. We both get to give ourselves full time to this work. And it's a similar idea to the one King Hezekiah had in 2 Chronicles 31, which we just read. Uh, 2 Chronicles 31 verse 4, Hezekiah commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and the Levites so that they might give themselves to the law of the Lord. You see a purpose in that gift. Um, and I know that we don't have the same role as those Old Testament priests and Levites, but nevertheless, in our own lives, the gifts of the people of God free us to give ourselves to the law of the Lord. And that is an enormous privilege, yeah. one that we really um, take very, very seriously. That is a great honor. And in return, we labor to sow the word of God into your lives in ways that do you good. Um, and if we do that effectively, then we're very glad to hear about it. So um, if this word from Paul moves you that you want to honor the work of preaching and teaching in this church, then here's the feedback that really matters to us. Not that you enjoyed the sermon or thought it was interesting, um, but that God spoke to you through his word as it was preached and gave you some challenge or encouragement that met you on your walk today. And then a month later, what you've done differently because of that encounter with his word. Tell us about those things and you'll really keep us motivated to keep laboring. Now on this subject, I want to share with you the life of a man who's really been inspiring me lately. Um, so our diocese, the Gulf Atlantic Diocese, has just been partnered up with another Anglican diocese in Africa so that we can learn about each other and pray for each other and support each other. And our partner diocese is the Diocese of Sebe in Uganda. And its new bishop is a man called Paul Masaba. Uh, here's a picture of him with his wife, Agnes. And uh, he came to the States last month, and Taylor and I got to meet them both uh, last month, which was a real honor. Uh, they are a godly couple. 
Um, very, very warm and kind. Um, and Bishop Paul has a situation in his diocese uh, where people are coming to faith much faster than he can raise up leaders in his churches. It's a real problem, it's a glorious problem, um, but it's a real problem for him. So he currently has over a hundred congregations under his care and only about 30 priests to take care of them. He just can't keep up with the growth. Uh, but he knows that these hungry Christians need the word of God, so that's his top priority right now. Right now he's focusing all of his resources into training and raising up clergy. So neither he, uh, nor the bishop, nor any of his priests in the diocese receives any pay at all for their work, none. All the money they have goes towards sending new leaders to seminary. It all goes to caring for those new sheep. And I'm just deeply, deeply moved and inspired by that. And may God bless them. Um, and let's pray for God to provide for all their needs as they labor in his name. All right, so the first thing Paul says is be discerning about who you honor. Now, second, be discerning about who you rebuke. Verse 19 says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So here Paul points to two sad realities within the church. The first is that some godly ministers will be falsely accused, and the second is that some ungodly ministers will persist in their sin. In both cases, it's a bit like Hans and Christoph, that we're not to take people at face value, but to tread carefully and be discerning. So if presbyters in the church do their jobs well, then they're very likely to be slandered and accused. Faithful preachers say what's true. And the truth is never popular because the truth asks people to change and nobody wants to. Uh, so Jesus had a long line of people at his trial ready to slander and falsely accuse him. And he was perfect. Um, so to some extent, false accusation is to be expected. So Paul says that vestries and leadership boards shouldn't be too trigger-happy in firing clergy on a slanderous accusation. Paul says you need two or three witnesses, and that's Old Testament language for the accusation has to stand up in court. But then the second sad reality is that not all of the accusations are going to be false. So accusations should not be dismissed too quickly either, because our beloved pastor would never do such a thing. All clergy are sinners. All priests, pastors, and presbyters are sinners. Taylor and I are sinners, and I hope no one ever forgets that. We will fail you. We will disappoint you. We will hurt you. We are not like Jesus yet. But by God's grace, we will not give up our own fight against sin and not stop confessing it and bringing it into the light and not stop allowing the Holy Spirit to transform us in holiness. So if an accusation of wrongdoing is brought against one of us, and it's true, the expectation is that we would humbly confess it and repent and then face the consequences. Confess sin is not necessarily disqualifying for ordained ministry, although of course in some cases it should be. But Paul has in mind here a very different situation 
uh, one where a pastor is confronted with sin and refuses to confess it or repent, but instead persists in that sin, persists in denial and self-justification. And in that situation, Paul prescribes the drastic step that the leader be publicly rebuked in the hearing of the whole congregation. In other words, that the hidden sin be exposed. And that sounds harsh and terrifying, but we have to think about the sheep. Paul is thinking about the sheep. His reason for saying it is in verse 20, so that the rest may stand in fear. If a person will take on a public position of leadership and accept public honor for faithful work, shouldn't they also accept public disgrace for unfaithfulness and hypocrisy, for betraying the Lord they claim to serve? When we stand up here and lead and teach, we make ourselves examples of Christian holiness. We say, in effect, Follow me as I follow Christ. And if we then lead off in the wrong direction, away from Christ, and refuse to admit that we're in the wrong, is it not necessary that we be publicly rebuked for that? So that the sheep for whom Jesus died may learn to fear God and not be left hopelessly wandering and confused. I love all of you enough that I would much rather be publicly rebuked if I fell into unrepentant sin than to see any of you confused about which was the right way to heaven. Whenever this happens in practice, it's going to be deeply painful. We all love our pastors and we hate the idea of their disgrace, but Paul is as firm about this as he ever is about anything. Look at verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. What else does that mean but don't be soft on the priests that you like and don't be judgmental on the priests you don't like. Think about the sheep and make the way of godliness clear. Now, on the subject of sin in church leaders, I want to specifically mention sexual sin, because sadly, a lot of the sin of church leaders is sexual sin. And this is often the kind that goes unseen and unconfessed the longest. Our diocese and our church is taking this problem very seriously right now. We've just renewed our commitment to integrity in the area of sexual misconduct. We have a brand new uh, sexual misconduct policy and a new requirement for training all of our leaders. As a diocese, we refuse to allow any level of sexual misconduct to exist at any level of leadership in our diocese. Now, Paul talks here about requiring two or three witnesses for an accusation against elders, but this is obviously impractical when it comes to sexual sin. When sexual abuse happens, there's usually only one witness by the very nature. So let me assure you that if you ever need to report a claim of this nature, it will instantly be taken seriously and investigated. There's a phone number on our office door that you can reach, that you can call to reach the uh, diocesan investigator directly. Call them and they will listen to you. Living in the light is non-negotiable, especially for clergy. So Paul says, first, be discerning about who you honour, and second, be discerning about who you rebuke. And now third, be discerning about who you ordain. Verse 22 says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. 
keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So in the context of this chapter, the laying on of hands is a rite of ordination. Paul said a chapter earlier that Timothy himself received his own gift of teaching when the Council of Elders laid hands on him, and now he performs that same ritual to ordain other elders. But Paul commands Timothy to be discerning about it and not be hasty in the laying on of hands. And if you look carefully here, in fact, he warns Timothy that Timothy will be personally culpable for sin if he ordains an ungodly leader. That's what Paul means by partaking in the sins of others. It will jeopardize Timothy's own holiness and purity. So notice then what's implicit in that warning. Paul means that the choice of who to ordain to leadership is Timothy's choice. So not only God's choice and not the church member's choice, but the bishop's choice. Because if God handpicked his own elders by divine fiat, how could Timothy be held accountable for their sin? Or if elders chose themselves by stepping up to the role, how could Timothy be held accountable for who came forward? Or if the church elected its elders by vote, how could Timothy be held accountable for their choice? But here, Paul holds Timothy accountable. And that can only be because Timothy appointed the pastors of his churches. So the New Testament pattern is that Jesus chose his own apostles, and those apostles chose their own successors, including Timothy, and then Timothy chose his successors, and so on and so on throughout the history of the church. So I was just at Synod at the cathedral yesterday, and I saw for the first time they put up a new poster, um, and it charts the apostolic succession of our leadership. And the poster starts at the top with Simon Peter, and then it lists uh, 150 some names. Uh, it goes all the way down 2,000 years to Neil Labar at the bottom. Each man laid hands on his successor in an unbroken, physical, living, biological chain. And through those chosen leaders, the apostolic authority of the church is carried to this day, the authority of Jesus himself. So you can see what a weighty thing it would be to choose a bad priest. And that certainly does happen. But every precaution is taken to prevent it happening, if at all possible. The process now takes several years to give as much time as possible for the true person to emerge. Because, Paul says, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. All right, this is heavy stuff. Um, I hope that some of you sitting in this room right now will one day be ordained in the church as Amen. priests and deacons. Yes, uh, many of you have the faith and gifting for it, and some of you will also have the calling. Perhaps it will come as a relief to you to know that the decision about whether you take on that role isn't ultimately your decision. If Jesus wants you to do it, he will call you to do it, and the church will pray and discern very carefully and then finally agree that you are called to the work. So if you think you might have heard that call from Jesus, come and talk to us, and we can begin to discern it together. All right, so finally in this section, we need to talk about verse 23. 
in the midst of all this serious and weighty instruction, Paul throws in this little personal note to his friend Timothy. He says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. And as you read the commentators on this chapter, they're unanimously irritated by verse 23, because whatever their system for understanding this passage is, this verse doesn't fit. Uh, it just doesn't fit into the flow of Paul's argument in any way that anyone can figure out. Um, and so the ESV, as it translated the Greek, just put this verse in parentheses. Um, so um, it seems that Timothy uh, was a teetotaler, that he completely avoided drinking any alcohol. Um, and maybe Timothy chose this to abstain uh, from alcohol in order to avoid what he perceived as a common trap that other Christians sometimes fell into of alcohol abuse. So then Paul was writing to him on the subject of not taking part in the sins of others, and it triggered a little memory. It's like, oh, I've been meaning to say this to Timothy. Uh, he'd been meaning to bring up this little nugget of personal advice, so I just throw that into this letter right here. That's, that's my view of what happened. Um, so he just wanted to make this little note. Um, but it is uh, the advice of one godly leader to another, so um, we take it as God's word and we see what we can learn from it. Uh, what Paul recommends in this verse is that his friend relax his no-alcohol standard a little for the sake of his own health. All right? So it was a common belief at that time, that wine cured various illnesses. Um, and who knows, but it might very well have been just the prescription for whatever Timothy had wrong with him. Um, so there are two points to make from what Paul says here. First, that wine is not forbidden to Christians, uh, even leaders, for which we're very glad. Um, and second, it might very well be that some of us here uh, ought to abstain from it. Uh, Timothy may be teaching some of us godliness here, uh, because much better that we abstain from alcohol altogether than that we run any chance of abusing it. Um, so I know other Anglican priests, good friends, who have chosen not to drink anymore, or not to drink in public, uh, for the sake of presenting a pure witness to their life, the life in Jesus, which is a life of power and love and self-discipline in the Holy Spirit. Um, and I recently reread these words of King Lemuel in Proverbs 31. His mother told him this, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing, and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty, and remember their misery no more. Isn't that amazing? That's such a lovely, wise, caring perspective. What she says is, let the great stay sober and help their judgment and give the wine to the poor to help their pain. That's what she says to the king. Uh, so what she means is the more authority we hold, the more care we should take over alcohol. And I leave it to the Holy Spirit to convict you if more care is needed in your own life. So this whole passage is about being discerning because the most important things about people are often the least obvious things and the heart is what truly matters and only God sees the heart. So as we grow in Christ, we learn to value what God values and to be cautious in giving either our praise or our judgment. Amen.